Welcome to the Political R&D Podcast. After you finish listening, we would really appreciate if you would give us a rating on iTunes and Google Play to help other listeners find our show. We are taking PR&D to the next level. Our program will now include more frequent podcasts, including interviews that challenge and inform. We're also bringing in more writers to cover the politics in everything. Please consider becoming a patron. Your support will help us improve, increase, and pay for the content you enjoy. You can find us on Patreon at Political R&D or link through our website at politicalrnd.ca. We hope you enjoy this premium content that will be available to subscribers only after May 30th. Now, let's get political. Welcome back to Political R&D. I'm Deirdre Mitchell-McLean. And I'm Mark Taylor. And today we have a guest, Ed Whittingham, who is still doing consulting work in the field of clean energy. Welcome, Ed. Hey, great to join you both. Thanks for having me on. And we're going to look at what might be happening with specifically our oil industry post-COVID. So first of all, I wanted to start off with you, Ed, because you did a webinar on Tuesday that unfortunately I missed, I taped it and missed um, the sound. So what you were talking about the future of uh, Alberta Energy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I'll just note, uh, I think it's a sign of the times, uh, myself and and, uh, my two co-conspirators with whom I hosted the webinar, uh, we put it out there and we thought we might have an audience of 30 made up of, you know, from our families and our friends and fools who would be tricked into listening to what we had to say or watching. And we had an audience of over 300. Oh, wow. uh, Yeah. And I think, you know, you and Mark are finding the same, that there's just a tremendous appetite for for content right now, and especially for people, you know, to to listen to either wisely or unwisely, people like myself or yourselves pontificate on where we think the, uh, the sector is going in light of all the disruptions that it, that it mm-hmm. faces at the moment. Yeah. How did that go? I think it was, I think it was about an hour, but what, what can you kind of summarize for us out of that? And, and is it actually, before I even go there, is it available online somewhere? Yes, we have uh, <laughs> uh, a, let's see, a link that, because by the way, I should back up and say, we are no, by no means professional in doing this. We came together and almost on a lark decided to do this. And now uh, the two of you would be far more experienced running into all sorts of backend issues, including, <laughs> oh, we did, we recorded it because we pressed the right button with Zoom. Now, where the hell do we host it? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, it's kind of the blind leading the blind in our case. It, there is a link. Uh, we're going to get a proper link and we will send that out uh, for our next invite okay. because, um, yeah, we had enough of a positive response. It was kind of like a North Korean election result at the end there. That's, uh, 99% <laughs> of people said we should do it again and we're hunting down the 1% who said we shouldn't and right. <laughs> we'll threaten them with King Jong-un or anti-aircraft guns or something like that. Yeah. So that's, that's really a long answer to your very short question. <laughs> That might be a theme for our chat today. Yeah. (laughs) 
no worries, no worries. So what, what did you come up with? Yeah, as a, as a summary, what did you come up with? Because your two guests, I know it was uh, Sarah Hastings-Simon. Correct, yeah. And uh, Keith. And David Keith. David Keith, so, okay. Yeah, yeah, and they're both, I mean, yeah, you, pity me just for a moment because they're both PhDs in physics. Yes. They're with physicists. And uh, Sarah is affiliated uh, at UFC and David teaches down at Harvard and is the, the founder of Carbon Engineering. So, you know, I was a donkey amongst lions when it came to that webinar. Uh, but we had a lot of fun. And what, what did we find out? Well, at first point, that there's a tremendous appetite for people right now. And I think it comes out of the uncertainty that we're all feeling uh, around the energy sector. And then we played around with fun questions you know, just around, will this latest disruption to the energy sector, is it going to help or hinder uh, progress toward transition? Uh, we had fun pretending if we were Canada's energy czar, what would we do right now as a follow-up to what the feds have already done or what the province has done? Uh, we talked a bit about the leadership opportunity we thought that uh, Canada has in energy. And we unpacked uh, this strange time that existed before COVID, and maybe we've had a brief reprieve of it, and that's hyperpolarization on all things to do with energy and climate that in many ways has crippled progress uh, on, on energy and climate and doing things like building big energy infrastructure. So mm -hmm. we played around with all that, and then we took questions for 20, 25 minutes. So let's start with what the oil and gas production trajectory was before COVID, before the price war, um, you know, everyone was pretty much saying uh, it's only going to go up once it actually starts back on, uh, once, once we recovered from the 2014, which, I mean, we hadn't really recovered, but there was at least a, a little bit of a trajectory. It was going up and mm -hmm. You know, we, we were constantly told that uh, it was just going to continue to increase, that demand would continue to increase through 2040. Those were the projections that we've been getting for at least the last three years, I think. Correct. Correct. And where I think we are right now is we've moved away from, you know, most forecasters or prognosticators to projecting hockey stick-like growth. Mm any longer. And, and, and I hear that from very thoughtful people deep in downtown Calgary, where it used to be that we're on this path to 130, 140 million barrels. Uh, you know, it's uh, demand will be insatiable. And what uh, we're hearing now, and, and I think that these forecasters are right, demand will still increase. But what we've seen is probably the peak in the growth of demand. So instead okay. of, say, 5% annual growth per year, it would be 4% or 3% or 2%. I don't, I don't think by any means we've hit peak oil yet, but I think we've hit peak demand growth. Okay. Well, and that makes sense when you take a look at the next couple of years. You know, we're still going to have some degree of social distancing. Um, travel is not going to be, you know, airline travel is definitely going to be down. Cruise line, definitely down. Like you're going to see, you see supply chain trucking is going to be about the same, but a lot of the other things that use commercial uses of fuel would be down dramatically as well as probably personal use. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, if you just look at gasoline consumption right now, it's down 60 to 70%. Mm 
So we'll have this short-term dip. And then it's possible, this is the, the massive wild card um, that affects not just energy, but so many industries is what kind of new behaviors that we've all been forced to adopt during this COVID time and time of sheltering in place, which ones will, will stay sticky? So for instance, you know, I'm hearing lots of, um, call them laptop workers, uh, those knowledge workers who say, well, even when we're let out of our living rooms, I'm not going back to working in an office nine to five, Monday to Friday. Mm-hmm. I've got a taste of working at home. You know, I got a taste of the product and uh, I like it. So you might get me Tuesday to Thursday, but you're not going to get me Monday to Friday because I'm going to keep those for home office days. Okay. Uh, and, and, and so that, that's just one indicator. And, you know, another, and this has all sorts of energy implications as well. Is let, let's just look at what's happened to the restaurant industry. You know, people are going to be less going to restaurants to dine in when they've had a taste of the, uh, the delivery product. And, you know, I live here in Canmore. There's a great restaurant very close to my house called Crazy Weed. But many Calgarians would know. And it's great food, but they're delivering. And some people might say, hey, the actual sit-in experience gives me that much utility. The food is the majority of it. So, and I'm going to, you know, provide my own plonk, my own wine. So I'm just going to have them deliver to me. So it, that The wine's all... cheaper that way for sure. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. They don't allow me to bring my own bottle, you know. Uh, so, uh, so this, you know, this is the fascinating time is we're going to come out of this slow COVID recovery period and we're going to discover which of these behaviors stick and then what are the implications for all our systems, for trade, mm-hmm. from finance to, uh, to energy. Um, I think it's going to be pretty significant. And, and I mean, the CBC had an article today even talking about how much of a ghost town downtown Calgary is and and Deirdre, you and I talked about this previously about how many oil companies are actually going to want to go back and operate in downtown Calgary. You know, you're going to see, you know, it, are they going to want to be back Tuesday through Thursday or can most of those people work remotely and you just get a small space that's got a boardroom and a couple of offices to work out of and dramatic footprint decrease uh, in your office space now? Yeah. And, and Mark, I've actually heard, interestingly, the contrary argument, too. You could have that dramatic decrease, or you could have people saying, I'm only going back to work if I'm space far apart from Sally in accounting. You know, I'm not sitting shoulder to shoulder with her anymore. You got to give us two meters or more space. So your utilization rate of that space goes way down. So it might be that some companies who need people working in a central location um, actually need more space. It's just one of those things. We don't know. We, we really mm-hmm. don't know. But one thing I think we can plausibly say is the future of work, a lot of knowledge work now, will be distributed as opposed to co-located. Okay. And that also opens up that bigger question of if you can do this job from anywhere, why do I want to choose just anywhere in Alberta? when I could maybe have anywhere in Canada, maybe I could have anywhere in the U S it, it really does open up the possibilities, but also competitively that's a little worrisome for em- employees. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, I'm talking to you. I'm in, I'm in Cadmore. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm are in Strathmore. You both in- You're in Strathmore. Cool. Yeah. I'm the Calgary guy. <laughs> Calgary. Okay. So 
you know, the, there's been lots of discussion. It's going to happen. The, the passenger rail connection linking the Calgary airport through to Banff. The oh. stops at the number of places along the way, including in Canmore. So I sit here in Canmore and one of these trends will be, we're in the commuter shed. And, and if you have regularly scheduled service, which it will be regularly scheduled service mm -hmm. at an affordable rate, you're going to have those professionals who say, yeah, I can do my work anywhere. Maybe they're not going to Vancouver Island. Maybe they're saying, I'm getting out of Calgary and I already have a weekend home in Canmore and I'm just going to live full-time in Canmore. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'll do the Monday and Friday at home and then I'll commute in Tuesday to Thursday on the passenger rail line. So yeah. things like this, and I think COVID has just sort of accelerated the effect of a lot of trends that were, were sort of in place pre-COVID. They were, and I think too that in a lot of ways, uh, because as, as technology boomed the way that it did, personally, I always felt like the world of work did not change accordingly as much as I felt like it should have. Mm -hmm. And, and so with some of those things of working from home and, you know, online meetings and things like that, um, uh, it's, it's a way of life all of a sudden. And I remember listening very recently to someone who said, you know, do I really need to take a commercial flight from Calgary to Winnipeg when I can just get onto Zoom? Do I actually need to be there in person? And obviously that's easier when you've already uh, built a relationship, but this is different than being on the phone even because you can actually see someone. You, can, you have that, that ability to remember them and, and when you do see them in person, which was something you couldn't do prior to, you know, the uh, easeability of technology use. Oh, completely. We're all becoming way more comfortable with the technologies. Um, and this, you know, all these companies like Zoom or Microsoft Teams, uh, like we're still on pretty primitive systems. Like now with this massive injection of cash and, and an increase in demand, they're going to innovate like mad. And so mm -hmm. the Zoom that we're on today that we're using to have this conversation will seem like a buggy whip, I think, um, or a carriage compared to the Zoom that we'll have a year from now. Because Zoom just got a lot wealthier and they're going to come up with a far more innovative and better product. And you're right. Like, again, I'm here in the Bow Valley. So lots of tourism here. And a good chunk of that is the, uh, the conference market, the business market. And it used to be I'd fly halfway across the country to attend a two-day seminar, which I really wasn't interested in, but I'd do it for the networking over coffee or drinks afterward. Yeah. And now, exactly, Jared, I'm saying, do I need to do that versus... I'm going to grab Jim by Zoom yeah. and, uh, you know, both of us won't have to travel and we're just going to network that way. Yeah. Potentials. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the trajectory that we're on, do you feel as well that, that this slowdown and granted we've talked about this before and we've really focused on the fact that it is a double whammy of what's happened in and I'm not, I'm not going to say just in for Canadian energy, but for North American energy, the price war that was started as well as COVID, um, you know, the shale oil boom, which was great for a couple of years. And then it just, it, it died down a lot faster than I would have thought. Does this also spur the clean energy uh, sector as well? 
right now? Sure. Well, we put that as a poll question to the 300 some odd who tuned into us on, on Tuesday. And uh, we laughed because it came out like a Canadian election result. And that I think we had 37% saying yes, 33% saying no. <laughs> and then the remaining 20% saying it's going to stay the same, you know? So, uh, 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 you know, I probably have my math wrong there. Uh, but uh, don't, don't, don't add those up at home to see if they add up to 100 or not. They don't, just to help you out. <laughs> they don't. Okay, I, th I think I'm 10% short somewhere, but hey, what's 10% between friends? <laughs> uh, so we, we made arguments for why it would and why it wouldn't. So I'll, I'll just speak to, to mine rather than trying to channel my, my, two, uh, my two colleagues. Uh, so I think here in Canada, at least, I'm going to be very local. You know, up until this disruption, well, and still through the disruption, you know, when it comes to transition and clean energy, and is this a thing or is this a fad, uh, to put it very simplistically, you know, there's been a split in the industry, and I'd say a split between, call them sort of the large Fortune 500 multinational companies, who kind of get it, they've got the expo exposure to, to international markets. And, and again, I'm being very simplistic here, but maybe the smaller to mid-sized companies who have less exposure, who've been thinking, well, just get the federal monkey off our backs and uh, we'll go back to just producing the way we used to and good times and uh, yeah, people still need lots and lots of oil. So I think the latter camp, you know, that just get the federal monkey off our backs, that camp just got smaller and we already had disruption coming into this and now it's been disrupted even more and people are saying yeah there's something really happening here and it's it's not going to be like it was and we're not going to stampede to 130 million barrels a day so the good news though is our companies they've been thinking about esg things you know sustainability things i think a lot longer than many other companies around the world We've been thinking about net zero far more than many other industries. And we're probably farther along the disruption transition curve than a bunch of other places. So if we give companies financial space to not just keep their workers working and keep economic activity going, but to retool themselves and to make clean investments and figure out carbon capture and important, figure out hydrogen and important pieces like that. I think coming out of this, we spend our public money wisely that we'll be further ahead. So call me an eternal optimist, but I think it's gonna be a fundamentally good thing, as painful, no doubt, as painful as it is right now. So, so those are the bigger companies you see, the, the Suncors, the CNRLs, the uh, the bigger companies have the ability to pivot, but would you see some of the smaller um, cap companies in Calgary who could pivot from being a petroleum company to an energy company looking at something other than uh, drill, baby drill as a uh, model? Yeah, they can. It's, it's much tougher. You know, transitions are best made from a position of strength rather than weakness. And that includes healthy balance sheets. I use the analogy you're not going to put a rooftop solar system on your house if you're struggling to make your mortgage payments. And so we've got some of these smaller companies, small cap to mid cap companies that are, are really struggling. I mean, even, even good companies right now have 
you know, with even co good companies with good balance sheets are struggling. If your balance sheet wasn't good going into this, it sure didn't get any better. Right. So what they need is liquidity. Um, but liquidity, you know, no policymaker that I talk to, including in this province, in the provincial government, wants to spend a whole bunch of public money or provide liquidity if it's just going to give a slightly longer off-ramp um, for companies that weren't doing well to begin with. So frankly, I think weaker companies, you know, if you're, you're weakened coming into this, not everyone's coming out. And unfortunately, the policy measures we'll use will be a bit Darwinian. And we're going to see some companies wink out. We're going to see some consolidations as well. Um, and that was kind of, you know, one of the questions I had going into this conversation was I'd seen some interesting articles coming out of the United States. Uh, one, uh, Trump's talking about paying producers to keep their oil in the ground. But another that really sparked my interest was that banks were, were going to start calling back loans, but instead of just sitting on um, reservoirs, they were actually going to start getting into the business of being an oil company until such time as though those uh, reserves were worthwhile. So I was wondering, like, what would, what would that look like in a Canadian model? Because we've already been told that a lot of the banks aren't going to be looking at our, at our local producers anymore. They're not going to be injecting money like they did 10 years ago. And so all we kind of got left now is the government to say, mm -hmm. you know, we'll help you out. And I mean, you know, are we talking the government directly? Are we talking AIMCO? Are we talking ATB? You know, I don't know which entity or is a combination of them all, but are we in a situation where the Alberta government might end up owning a lot of its own resources again? Well, possibly, but I think unlikely. So at the outset of this crisis, there's discussion of a TARP program, a TARP, a Troubled Assets Relief Program, you know, akin to the bailout of the auto manufacturers in the 08-09 crisis. And I thought that conversation died down pretty quickly when we heard that there just wasn't the appetite for that on the federal side high appetite for liquidity measures. And when the feds announced, you know, their measures uh, aimed specifically at the energy sector, it included increased liquidity uh, for EDC, BDC. Uh, so those, those are rolling out. You have others asking for more from say SDTC or Sustainable Development Technology Canada, the Canada Infrastructure Bank. The feds are, are doing their best to, to load them up but going in and directly buying shares and taking equity stakes, well, we did that with Trans Mountain, not because it was the optimal course of action, because it was a last resort. It really was a last resort, and we're toughing through it. But, you know, I don't think people really like the nationalization of these assets. And they're very wary of governments actually investing directly in these companies as a way of propping them up. I could be completely wrong, but that's, that's my sense. Well, I agree with you. People don't like it. But again, with that perfect storm that's been going on, you have, uh, you have investment firms that have promised to remove themselves from uh, oil and gas investment. You have 
banks that have said we're no longer lending. You have insurance companies that are saying we're no longer going to insure if people are lending to oil and gas companies. So uh, again, this, this storm that's been brewing really puts, I think, not just Canadian energy, but you know, North American energy in a real state right now because the lending capabilities that used to be there, or I guess, I don't know if it's capabilities, but uh, the lending institutions that used to be available are no longer willing to give. And so I think this puts additional pressure on our governments and, and it's something that the Alberta Premier Jason Kenney has been calling for. Equity investments in oil and gas, in Alberta's oil and gas. He's been calling on the feds to start something like this. And maybe it's because of all those, uh, all those other roadblocks that have been put up over the last couple of years. Sure. And, and it gets back to the situation wasn't great going into this for many companies. They're facing, right. you know, infinite cost of capital. Uh, their lenders uh, were telling them that uh, we're not going to recapitalize you. You have to, you know, operate just on cash flow. And oh, by the way, you know, ESG rules or environment, social and governance rules, you know, sustainability rules were increasingly being dictated out of New York and London finance centers as opposed by government you know so it was really tough going into it and that's why i have a hard time seeing not everyone's coming out of this you know mm-hmm. there will be losses unfortunately it's like walking into a battle and you look at your battalion not everyone is coming out the other side of this and we're already seeing that a bit more in the u.s now like just today the news that chesapeake energy is looking to to file for chapter 11 Mm-hmm. that that would be big and my sense and again I could be wrong is the government and particularly the federal government is going to take a bit of a Darwinian approach to this so they will amp up uh, those liquidity measures it doesn't mean that everyone is going to get like a CERB 2000 check by checking three boxes online Mm-hmm. It's well, here's your liquidity, but we want to know that you're going to come out of this and you're going to retool, which means the companies that have the healthier balance sheets are likely to survive and access that liquidity. The ones that don't may have a tough time surviving, and then that's just going to lead to the big players getting bigger and consolidation. And that is often the trajectory of industry anyway. If you look at it, often the trajectory over decades is industries just go through high amounts of consolidation. I think we'll see it in energy. Okay. That's actually, oh, I don't know if that's more positive or not than nationalization. I guess it depends on who you're talking to. <laughs> well, yeah. And, and I, for one, you know, some people out there think I'm a pinko commie socialist, but no, I, I, I <laughs> let me... Let me disabuse you of that notion. I'm not for nationalization. Uh, I, uh, I think that is a last resort, just like the government buying Trans Mountain was not a, a signal of success. That was a symptom of failure. It was a last resort, last ditch measure mm-hmm. because of a whole bunch of things and multiple people fumbling the ball along the way. Yeah. So, 
So I know a lot, a lot of what we've been talking about is more on the producer side of things. There, the, there's the other side of the coin, so to speak, in the oil and gas is the service side. So with a lot of the producers shutting down here for at least heavily reducing their activity over the next year, um, not having you know the finances to go out and do extra drilling, to do extra fracking, to do extra cementing, pick all your services. Um, do you see the same type of consolidation happening there or is there uh, a bigger world of hurt coming in that way? Or um, what, do you, what do you foresee on, on that side of the spectrum? Yeah, I think the drillers are hurting even more right now. And I think they're even more on the edge. So you'll have more drillers go under. And then with that, you know, those who will, whatever pieces there are left, the bigger ones will, will pick them up. And so I, I see it playing out uh, over that part of the industry too. Well, and remember too, that when the legislation was changed for the Orphan Well Association, that allowed them to choose subcontractors to keep uh, viable assets running. This kind of gives a little bit of an opportunity as well for uh, companies to transition from having that responsibility to not having that responsibility mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. still be working and profiting off of what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why the, uh, the, the funding announced for orphan wells. Oh, sorry. Let me just turn that one off. <laughs> Popular guy. There you go. Yeah, please edit that one out. Um, yeah, the, the, the funding announced when the feds, what they have announced with uh, methane, but money for orphan well remediation, well remediation. Uh, I think that was positively received by all types, you know, environmental types, uh, industry, the government of Alberta, although Premier Kenny and Energy Minister Sonia Savage were quick to point out that we see this as a first measure. This is not yeah. it. It's not one and done. But they, they also overdue. were quick to repackage it as an Alberta government thing, but that's that was a different yes. podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, you know, and let them let them take credit for it. The bottom line is uh, it serves a few objectives, including people getting people back to work quickly and dealing with lights on the landscapes. Right, that that mm -hmm. uh, we're we're well overdue in, in dealing with those. Absolutely, and. Okay, so that was that was basically what what brought us back to um, you know the the potential because I think there are still a number of people who would like to see um, not they don't want to see a nationalized energy program, but they want to see Alberta oil flowing from the west coast to the east coast and everywhere in between and mm -hmm. That was that was a, a change that actually happened in about 2016, I think. Uh, Prasad Panda, when he was a Wild Rose MLA, was one of the first ones that brought it up. Was that the government needs to, um, you know, the the energy corridor that would pave the way for whatever pipelines we needed, things like that. Uh, the the buy Alberta oil things, you know, it was. It was interesting because it was coming definitely from the opposite side of the aisle. And that part, that part, part during the 80s 
we know it in Alberta as Trudeau Senior's great failure of the National Energy Program. Outside of Alberta, it was called a global oil glut. And what happened during that time was that the potential to have, you know, work specifically on Canada's energy future, it really seemed to, it blew up, basically. It, it blew up with all of the, I don't know, incorrect messaging, but still. And it's, it's one of those things today that you still can't say without having people get really angry. But Western Canada Select is currently less than, or sorry, it's almost as much as it was in 1986. Mm-hmm. So it's just slightly above that today. Before, I, before this, I checked, it was $11.56. In 1986, it dropped from $28 a barrel to $10 a barrel, mm-hmm. which, of course, was at least a year and some after Trudeau was no longer in the federal government. Like, we've, we've seen these drops before. Looking at, the, looking at the trajectory of it, I'm kind of wondering whether or not the best place for us to be selling is actually outside of the country or if it does need to be moved within the country. Just looking at the trajectories, trajectories that it's gone on. Mm-hmm. Or it's, it's, it's a both and conversation. So we do. I mean, right now, sure, we've got a bunch of Canadian oil that is produced uh, and consumed domestically. And then we've got a bunch that we ship to the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the question is, if we took all our oil and then just uh, had it for domestic consumption, would we have too much? Uh, is there I think a it's still not enough. It? Yeah. I, but, then, think, yeah. but we're also, and, and you know, this is one of the conversations with Energy East, or you know, I'm a veteran of many conversations on a national energy strategy, mm-hmm. which I was looking through my documents and I found something, it was a thought piece that uh, was written when I was at the Pemmon Institute, it was with the Canada West Foundation and Suncor and all three of our logos at the top. And I thought, oh, that was a different time. (laughs) (laughs) A little less polarized where you could actually, we came together and started using national energy strategy together in a sentence. Uh, And the joke I make is we could use it without the fear of Trudeau the elder coming and haunting your meeting room. (laughs) And we did that in Calgary before you could do that in Ottawa. Uh, But to get to that point where, for instance, we are biasing domestically produced energy products like oil or refined gasoline over, you know, products coming from outside of the country, then we need a national energy strategy, which is really just some commonly accepted vision of what Canada's energy future looks like. And we've had effort after commission, after roundtable, and so far we've failed to do that. The, the knock against say, a buy Alberta strategy is in normal times, that means that you are telling gasoline consumers in Ontario and Quebec and say the Maritimes that you're going to pay a price premium for this. Right. Because right now, the way the markets are set up in shipping and trade, they buy that, that's, you know, that sweet, light Saudi crude because it is cheaper for them to do so than reaching across and buying Western Canada select. Mm-hmm. So, a part of our national energy future uh, involves the, the gasoline consumer in central and eastern Canada saying, yes, we are willing to pay a premium to help out 
our brothers and sisters in Alberta and given all the national benefits that our, our you know, federal uh, transfer regime provides, then have at her. Let's do it. But as we found with carbon pricing, people push back pretty hard during normal times when they see any increase of, of uh, price at the pump. So that's a tricky conversation. Good time to have it, but uh, we're, we're, we're not there yet. Certainly, we wouldn't have that consensus from, say, Eastern or Central Canadian gas consumers. And I would go one step further to say that Alberta really hasn't endeared itself to Ontario, Quebec, the Maritimes, that they might be inclined to pay a premium for our stuff. Yeah. Well, the <laughs> last time, totally. I mean, the last time I was in Ottawa and went out for a drink with an Albertan living in Ottawa, working for the federal government, I was called a whiny Albertan. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and <laughs> this guy, if it should be sympathetic, it is sympathetic. But yeah, in, in some ways we haven't endeared ourselves, including the political reality or the political math is you've got a federal government that doesn't have any MPs from Alberta sitting in it. And that's a, a choice that we collectively made as Albertans. Yeah. So yeah, that's at times like a knife fight, I guess, with one hand tied behind your back. It's, uh, it's not a great place to be. Well, and it's funny because I've, I've sat in rooms with some pretty ardent conservatives, small C conservatives. Well, they were libertarians as well. They, you know, they, they found that the federal conservatives were moving too far left. And they're like, well, how do, how do we influence this liberal government more? And I'm like, vote liberal. Well, we can't do that. <laughs> yeah, actually you can. It's just an X on a box. Well, what would that do? And it's like, elect liberals who sit in government and make decisions like how do you think the government and are works? personally accountable to you at, at their constituency office yeah yeah when we had an albertan as natural resource minister in the last government and amarjeet sohi mm -hmm. and what did we do is we what did we do we punished him and threw him out of office and elected a guy uh, who lives in ottawa instead yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was yeah. so he spot, wasn't it? Yep. Tim yeah. Upple, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Who's who's yeah. also tied in with some kamikaze leadership race things? But... Of course. Yeah. That's also another podcast. Yes, it is. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, do you, Mark? Do you have anything else to add? No, no. This was a great conversation. It was great to yeah. have that on. So. Yeah. Thank you for having me on. Uh, this is this is a lot of fun, and uh, that's one thing we can do. Uh, we're all sheltering in place. It's just talk to each other a lot more. Yes, absolutely, and and try to you know try to make other people have different conversations too. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks so much, Ed and Mark. My pleasure. Yep. Thanks to you both. The Political R and D podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts. And you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Political RND. Mm -hmm.